I'm Avery Arden of the Rock Candy Podcast Network, and you're listening to Blessed Are the Binary Breakers, a multi-faith podcast of transgender stories. Happy Easter season to all who celebrate. This episode delves into one of the most iconic post-resurrection stories, the classic tale of Doubting Thomas, who needs to touch the wounds of the crucifixion in order to believe that Jesus is truly risen. Longtime listeners may recognize that I've already done an episode on this very story. Back in episode 40, Goodness Embodied, a non-binary, intersex first human, and a disabled risen Christ, I connected the risen Jesus of John 20 to the very first human of Genesis 2. I argued that these two figures are connected by scar tissue, and I get really deep into disability theology around how Jesus' wounds would have been disabling wounds, impairing his fine motor skills and his mobility, and potentially causing chronic pain. That episode was adapted from a sermon I preached last year for a queer church online. This year, I got to preach from John 20 once again, for my home church, Grace Presbyterian in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. The chance to revisit this story through preaching every year has been so rewarding. I've been able to re-articulate and expand upon why I find it so meaningful, particularly through trans and disability lenses. This time around, I didn't bring in Genesis 2 so that I had more time to focus on Jesus and the various ways Christians have identified with his wounds over the ages. I grapple with the complications of marginalized bodies being put on display for public consumption, of being made into spectacle. And I explore whether it's possible for marginalized persons to have any agency in how their bodies are viewed and interpreted. Above all, I maintain the core argument that in rising with disabling wounds, Jesus proved once and for all that all bodies are good bodies, that what the world calls shameful or lesser is in fact perfectly compatible with holiness. This episode presents the sermon I preached last Sunday, but a slightly longer, slightly more scholarly version with expanded explanation of some points I left out of the original sermon for the sake of time or because they were a little bit edgy for a Sunday morning service. I bring up a few art pieces that I'll link to in the episode notes and also feature in the episode transcript, but I also describe them verbally so you can just listen along if you're not able to see the images. If you just want to watch the original sermon, I'll also provide a link to where to watch that. Before all of that, let's open with the affirmation of faith I wrote for the service, right after a word from another podcast on the Rock Candy Network. Hey, I'm Andrew. And I'm John. Our show, Magnified Pod, is the only podcast that discusses culture, religion, politics, and deep dives into the discographies of the bands that shaped a generation of 90s youth group kids. Check out Magnified Pod on the Rock Candy Podcast Network and wherever you get your podcasts. We worship a mystery, a being too vast to capture in words who reveals God's self to each of us in different ways. While making room for different understandings, let us affirm the faith that draws us together. 
We believe in the God whose word birthed the cosmos, who shaped human beings from the rich topsoil, who breathed her own breath into us, blessed both our earthy bodies and celestial spark, and declared us good, very good. When evil taught us shame, for those very bodies God had blessed, God became a seamstress, tenderly dressing her children, Adam and Eve, never dismissing our distress, but giving us what we need to believe in our inherent dignity again. This God reminds us at every opportunity that we are destined for freedom. God did what it took to liberate her people from enslavement in Egypt and from countless future captors, human powers who wield control through violence and fear. The God who walked through Eden put on wheels. The throne Ezekiel saw rolling through the heavens followed their people into exile and back again. And then this same God settled into flesh. For God so loved the world they'd made that they entered into it themselves, weaving God's self a human form within a human womb. From boundless power to an infant in the lap of his teenage mother, God learned to crawl, to walk, to speak with human tongue the news they'd been proclaiming through pillars of flame and cloud, their prophets' cries, and in the stillest silence. In Jesus, God brought restoration to bodies and spirits aching under the yoke of empire, the shackles of shame, and then God died. But no tomb can restrain life itself for long. Christ rose with wounds, reminders of what happens when we allow violence and fear to reign unchallenged. This wounded Christ ascended into heaven, but his spirit abides with us still, stirring up our indifference, whispering hope into our despair, and whisking us up into the hard but holy work of unrolling a kingdom accessible to all. Last Sunday, our pastor shared the story of Mary Magdalene waiting for Jesus outside the empty tomb in that strange space between night and dawn. Her wait was a long and difficult one, but joy came with the morning. Mary Magdalene became the first person to whom the risen Christ appeared. This week, it's Thomas who awaits the risen God. And I can't help but have a soft spot for Thomas, because I can't imagine how it would feel to be the last one in my friend group to receive proof of miraculous news. Poor Thomas has to wait eight days longer than the rest of his friends to encounter Jesus. In his shoes, I'd have doubts and questions too. Are my friends playing the world's cruelest joke on me, claiming our dead friend is alive again? Are they deluding themselves? If they're telling the truth, why has he appeared to everyone but me? Our reading starts the same day that Mary reports her Jesus sighting, and then continues to eight days later. Listen now for a reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 29, my translation. Then when it was the evening of that day, 
the first day of the week, despite the doors having been shut tight where the disciples gathered on account of their fear of political authorities, Jesus came and stood in their midst. And he said to them, Peace to you. And having said that, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced upon seeing the Lord. Then Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. Just as the parent has sent me forth, so I also send you. And upon saying this, he breathed into them and said to them, Accept the Holy Spirit. If you let go of the wrongs of any, they are let go of. If you hold fast to anyone's wrongs, they are held fast. But Thomas, one of the twelve, the one called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and I put my finger into the mark of the nails, and I put my hand into his side, no, I must not believe it. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Despite the doors having been shut tight, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Bring your finger here. Check out my hands. Bring your hand also and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas replied to him, saying, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are the ones who have not seen, yet have believed. It's an unpleasant idea, sticking your finger into someone else's wound, intimate, even invasive. Why would Thomas want to do that? Why would Jesus let him do that? The Christians of medieval Europe found this concept compelling. Much artwork exists from that time of Jesus' side wound, often in devotional texts where individuals were encouraged to touch it on the page, to kiss it, to pray while looking at it. Then there are stigmata, reports of saints like Francis of Assisi, who meditated on the suffering of Christ so fervently that Christ's very wounds appeared on their own hands and feet. In a less literal adopting of these wounds, some people would wrap a girdle of parchment depicting Christ's wounds around themselves during childbirth so that they could identify their own labor pains with the pain Jesus endured on the cross. They felt seen in their pain, that their God knows what it's like to go through agony that yields new life. But Thomas doesn't want to feel Jesus' pain for himself. He just wants to look, to touch. It's at least a little voyeuristic. I can't help but think of the way people stare at marginalized bodies, ogling strangers with visible disabilities, or gaping at anyone whose gender they can't easily determine. Then there's the way white people sometimes think it's appropriate to ask a black colleague if they can touch their hair. Even pregnant people have to put up with everyone from friends to co-workers to random passersby reaching out to touch their stomach without permission, 
as if their condition cancels out basic rules about boundaries and consent. Did Thomas make Jesus feel like he was in a freak show? Those horrific spaces where human beings with physical differences were put on display for public consumption. A contemporary art piece inspired by this gospel story spotlights these questions of marginalized bodies as spectacle. In a photograph that recreates a famous Renaissance painting by Caravaggio, Swedish photographer Elizabeth Olsen Wallen swaps out Jesus for a person with a buzz cut and tattoos whose shirt is unbuttoned to reveal top surgery scars. Incisions that signify this person underwent surgery to flatten their chest. Three figures who represent Thomas and two other disciples gather around this person looking intensely at the top surgery scars, while the Jesus figure guides Thomas's hand towards the scar. Obviously, Jesus never had top surgery. He is not trans the way I am trans, because he lived thousands of years before Western conceptions of gender came to be. Even so, Connecting the tale of Thomas and the risen Christ to this contemporary trans experience does many fruitful things. First, it challenges those viewers who assume that holy bodies are normative bodies. It also challenges those who think that scars or other physical differences are inherently indecent, that they should be covered up so as not to offend people. I think of a friend of mine with scars on her arm from a cancer surgery, whose classmate asked her to please pull her sleeve down because it grossed him out, when she was happy with how the scar had been healing, and happy with what it represented in her journey. I think also of the fat phobia faced by many people with larger bodies who get harassed or ridiculed for daring to show skin at the beach or the gym as if their bodies are inherently unsuitable for public spaces. This is the same kind of thinking that gets nursing infants banned in public, and that in past decades was used to ban people with deformities from public spaces in what were called ugly laws. It's grotesque but important U.S. history if you want to look it up. But to return to the art piece of Christ with Top Surgery Scars, Another thing this photograph does is comforts and encourages people like me who long to see ourselves represented in scripture, to be reminded that we too are in the image of God, not in spite of, but even in and through the very things that the world calls shameful. And then there are the questions that this art piece evoked in me and others during my sermon planning session. In the photograph, what expressions are these contemporary disciples making as they look upon the Jesus figure's scars? Is Thomas leering? Or is he grateful for his friend's trust in him? Are the two figures in the background dubious, aloof, reverent? In this contemporary version of the story, if the three people gathered around this visibly trans person are not transgender themselves, does the photo reinforce the idea of trans bodies being objects for cisgender consumption? When cisgender persons look at the photograph, how do they resist objectifying the trans model's body? Are they looking for proof that this person is really trans? 
what questions or judgments arise in their minds. On the other hand, could it be that the three disciples in this photo are also transgender? Maybe they are happy for their friend. Maybe they are even hopeful, imagining that top surgery is possible for them, too. If that's the case, this Jesus figure is what Laverne Cox calls a possibility model. When it comes to the trans community, a possibility model is someone who, by their very existence, shows other trans folk that it is possible to be trans and happy, to be trans and successful, to be trans and live a long and love-filled life. The example that always pops into my head when I think of possibility models comes from an article by S. Bear Bergman titled, Please Come and Be Fat. Bergman relates his experience at a trans conference in Seattle, where he's been visiting with friends, greeting acquaintances, and talking to parent after parent after anxious parent of trans and non-binary kids looking for reflections of themselves. A couple days into the conference, another person working there comes up to ask Bergman for help, saying, We're doing top surgery show and tell across the hall. It's pretty packed, but... Everyone who came to show their results is, like, me-sized. But a bunch of the guys who are looking to check out results are more you-sized. So I was wondering, if I watched the books and all for a few minutes, could you maybe go in there and be fat? I ask. He laughs nervously, all five foot five inches and 115 pounds of himself, compact and sleek as an otter, and nods. Basically. So, Bergman heads to the large ballroom, where people with top surgery scars stand around shirtless to show visitors what top surgery can look like. Bergman describes the scene. Some of them are flexing and posing, some just standing, but indeed all of them are the approximate size of my young acquaintance. Skinny, lean, trim, athletic, like the collegiate swim team for a small liberal arts university with an unusual number of tattoos. I don't pause, because I know if I stop, I will quail, and so I take a deep breath and walk directly to an empty spot, drape my shirt over a nearby chair, and attempt to look relaxed. I can't, of course, but it doesn't matter. In short order, there's a wave of rearrangement around the room, as though someone passed a magnet under the floor and drew all the bigger boys to me. I take slow breaths. I try to find a place of comfort in being shirtless and hairy and more than a little sweaty here in the hotel conference room, and soon I am answering questions. How much do I weigh? Do I weigh the same as I did when I had surgery? Do I like my chest? Did I have a revision? Am I happy with my results? I concentrate on my posture, on rolling my shoulders back and keeping my chest up and out. I don't think about being fat and half naked in a room full of strangers. I answer questions and shift my weight minutely from foot to foot and try not to think about the failure of my right nipple, about the soft rumpled patch in the center of my chest that looks like an unmade bed. I named it after a while. I decided it was the guest bed of my heart, but that hasn't made me like it much better so far. Oh well. It's complicated to be doing this, and I don't like it at all. And in the same hand, I'm grateful for the small-framed acquaintance who rabbited out of the room and came to get me. 
I'm glad he saw what was happening and found a way to solve the problem. I don't want to be standing here as a model of fat transness, but I am glad to be, because nobody else is. Sometimes making a spectacle of yourself is worthwhile, even when it's scary, even when you feel awkward and uncomfortable, even when it comes with risks. I am grateful to S. Bear Bergman for putting himself in that complicated spotlight, and I'm thankful to the risen Jesus for doing similarly, because the risen Jesus is a possibility model too. In showing off what a resurrected body looks like, Jesus models the possibility of life after suffering, life after death. Jesus has warned his disciples before that in saying yes to following him, they're also saying yes to sharing his suffering at the hands of human powers who want to stomp out his message. One day, Peter will be crucified too. His body will bear nail marks too, and that is definitely not good news in itself. The good news is what comes after that senseless violence. Resurrection. Restoration. The recognition that what the world calls foolish and weak, God calls wisdom and strength. Then there's Thomas, whom tradition says is martyred by a spear wound to the side. As Jesus guides Thomas's hand to his own side wound, is he silently saying, you won't be alone in your pain. I've been there and I'll be with you through it. Is he showing with the evidence of his own wounded but risen body, you will survive, even death. Let's return to Olson Wallen's artistic photograph of Jesus with top surgery scars and the Caravaggio painting it imitates one last time. In both pieces, my eye is drawn to the Jesus figure's hand holding Thomas's wrist, guiding Thomas to the wound or scar. In the biblical story, Thomas is the one who first expresses a desire to look and touch, but he does not actually get to do so until Jesus consents to it, until Jesus instructs him to do it. While on the cross, Jesus had no say in who consumed his suffering or how. Rome's intention was to twist this human being into a mangled, broken spectacle on the side of the road, and for a brief time, they succeeded. However, in the miracle of resurrection, Jesus regains his agency. He is the one who chooses not to conceal his wounds, which would have been disabling wounds, impairing his mobility, his fine motor skills, and possibly bringing chronic pain. Jesus chooses to give his wounds meaning by showing them to the people he loves. After all, Jesus understands the human need for tangible signs. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus makes use of things that people can touch and taste and see, water and bread, baptism and the washing of feet, to put into words the less tangible aspects of himself. Jesus is human too. He understands our need to reach out and touch the divine in order to believe. So Jesus holds out his hands. He guides his friend's fingers to his side so that Thomas can see, can touch, can then proclaim, my Lord and my God. 
Jesus does not rebuke Thomas for needing to see and touch. All the other disciples already got to see him eight days before, and Peter, James, John, and the rest of them got their own up-close and personal moment with Jesus. The text says he breathed into them to give them the Holy Spirit. Still, even while he responds to Thomas's need to touch with tenderness, Jesus does also note, blessed are the ones who haven't seen but believe. My friend Laura connects this statement to their experiences with chronic illness. The number of times they have sought help from doctors only to have their pain dismissed because medical tests come up with no evidence for it makes my blood boil. Truly, blessed are the doctors who believe that Laura knows their own body best, who validate Laura's pain even when they don't have answers for it. In the face of such denial, Having tangible evidence comes as a relief. One symptom of POTS, for instance, is a spike in heart rate every time you move from sitting to standing. It's a symptom that cannot be denied as being all in your head. It's a symptom that others can feel if Laura invites them to count their pulse. They recently invited their brother, whose name is by happy coincidence, Thomas, to do just that to take Laura's pulse before and after Laura stood up. This Thomas had heard his sibling talk about some of the things they go through, but when most of their pain is something only Laura can feel, that physical sign helped make it more real for him. And his belief, the beginnings of understanding, has helped the two siblings grow closer. But that kind of act takes a whole heap of vulnerability. You cannot control how someone else perceives you and your body. In their effort to have their experience validated, Laura risks being reduced to nothing but their disability, an object to be pitied and cared for, not a person with interests and hobbies and things to share with the world. Meanwhile, I like to educate folks about stimming, the rocking and flapping, spinning, humming, and so on that many autistic people do to help us navigate an often overwhelming world. In stimming freely and openly, my hope is to increase understanding and acceptance, but it could just as easily backfire. The people I hope to connect to with my stimming might instead use my vulnerability against me, interpreting me as weird or childish, as if being weird or childish were such a bad thing. The same thing goes for being openly and vocally trans. No trans person is obligated to be loud about their transness, just as no one else has the right to personal information about any trans person's medical history or identity. But some of us make the choice to be open, to advocate for our community by talking about our own experiences or simply by being visible in our everyday lives, reminding people that we exist and we are not going anywhere. You cannot legislate us out of existence. That vulnerability and visibility can backfire, as is all too evident in recent waves of attacks against the trans community, Hate crimes against trans persons, especially trans women of color, are higher than ever this year. State after state is unrolling legislation that targets the rights of transgender or questioning children, and they're not going to stop there. 
increased awareness of our existence has not only brought increased empathy from some, but increased violence from others. In such a climate, choosing to be visible and vocal is complicated, to say the least. If being seen for who we are risks being ogled at or worse, must we choose invisibility? Do visibly marginalized persons have any control over how people perceive us as we move about the world? I wonder if similar worries whirled through Jesus's mind as he invited Thomas to get close to his wounds. After touching these marks of torture, will Thomas's perception of Jesus shrink from teacher and friend to nothing but a recipient of pity or even disgust? Jesus decides to take the risk. He consents to be touched, and it pays off. Thomas responds, my Lord and my God. Jesus's wounds, the physical consequences of trauma, do not reduce his power in Thomas's eyes. In fact, this is the first and only time that anyone in the Gospels directly declares Jesus to be God. In the wounded body of the risen Christ, Thomas realizes that disability and divinity are not incompatible. I believe that this is one of the reasons Jesus chose to keep his wounds when rising into new life, so that all of us who have wounds, whether physical or spiritual, have tangible proof that those wounds do not separate us from God. We are not less whole. We are not less holy because we have scars. Jesus, God himself, does too. Now, it should be a given that marginalized or traumatized persons are just as much in the image of God as anyone else. But as it is, so many people wallow in shame and grief that something about who or what they are or something that was done to them makes them broken or unlovable. So God put on flesh to come down here and prove to us that what the world calls brokenness does not need fixing to be whole after all. Blessed are the ones who don't need to see that God is brown or disabled or Jewish or homeless or criminalized or queer in order to believe in the full dignity and worth of other people who are those things, but in a world that consistently drills into all of us that marginalized persons are less than human, I thank God for giving us that evidence anyhow. So I get why some people in the Middle Ages found comfort in identifying their labor pains with the pain of Christ on the cross. When labor pains were equated to shame, a consequence of Eve's sin, it is empowering to declare that no, childbirth is actually Christ-like. I also get why an artist during the plague painted Jesus with bubonic sores and why an HIV-positive man in the 90s painted Jesus with AIDS lesions. I affirm the LGBT persons who find parallels between Jesus' crucifixion and the murder of Matthew Shepard. I affirm black persons like James Cone, who proclaim that every time a white mob lynched a black person, they lynched Jesus. That every time a black person is killed by police, Jesus is killed with them. 
it is powerful to proclaim that God is a woman, that God is black, that God is disabled, that God is queer, in defiance of a world that denigrates and vilifies these identities. Because if God can relate to those experiences that the world tries to convince us are shameful, whether that's reproduction or chronic illness, having surgical scars or a colostomy bag, God redeems those experiences. In rising with his scars, Jesus shows us that such things do not need to be hidden in shame, but accepted as a part of life as inspirited bodies, embodied spirits. In this story of Jesus choosing to invite Thomas to draw close, choosing to be vulnerable in hopes of being seen and understood by the ones he loves, I find courage to do similarly. I will stim freely in public despite the risks in the hope that any neurodivergent folk who see me will be emboldened to move their bodies however feels right. I will talk about being trans and not worry about passing or fitting in so that other trans folk can feel a little bit braver and so that cisgender folk might learn to support us too. My siblings in the wounded God, I pray that you will join me in sticking up for everyone who likewise is visibly other in the world's eyes. Those who wear their hair in natural styles or covered by a hijab, who don't cover up scars or stretch marks, fat or wrinkles, who hold hands with their queer partners walking down the street, who use mobility aids, and on and on. For all of humanity together is made in God's image. Our diversity is a vital part of that. On that note, I close with a meditation on the body of God by Rebecca Anderson. Will you pray with me as I read Anderson's beautiful words? Imagine the body of God. Imagine it with all the genders and races and physical descriptions of the world. God is male and female and both and neither and all. God is black and red and olive and tan. God has hair in long braids, slanted eyes, flat nose, big lips, long beard, curvy body, long arms, short legs. God wears flowing dresses and blue jeans and saris and turbans and tuxedos and lots and lots of jewelry. God has tattoos of every animal of the world and a single heart-shaped stud in their right ear. And God has every ability and every disability in the world. God walks, God limps, God rolls, God crawls. God gets where God needs to be, gets to us however God can. God's mind works with the speed and sometimes the randomness of ADHD. God feels pain with the depths of depression and joy like an episode of mania. God hears the voices of all people and all living things. God has no one way of solving problems. Sometimes God moves from step to step with the most analytic of minds. Sometimes God makes great intuitive leaps that cannot be explained. Sometimes God gets stuck in a loop because the present, whether good or bad, is the time where God lives. 
God paints with their feet and reads with their hands. God can dance by swaying and shuffling and sing by making noises that are not words but express emotions that words cannot. God is too busy reaching out to us to be concerned that they cannot see. God is too busy feeling the rhythms of music in their bones to worry about what it sounds like. God is too loving, loving with all God's rhythmic heart to be anything but grateful for the body they have. Is it any wonder that we have trouble grasping God when God's body does not move the way we expect a body to move? Is it any wonder we have trouble understanding God when God speaks with the slurred words of cerebral palsy? Is it any wonder that we cannot comprehend God who bears the chronic pain of the suffering of the world? How can we come closer to this being beyond our comprehension, this body-mind that meets none of our expectations? by freeing ourselves of expectations, by searching for God in the unique body-minds of our fellow human beings, by seeking to understand that which challenges us and confuses us and frightens us, by accepting ourselves and the body-minds that make us who we are. When we pray that all of this may be so, when we pray to love all bodies and minds, when we pray to be both broken and whole all at once, we are praying to be more like God. Amen.